This is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. If Canadian history has told us anything about Canadians, it's that transportation is a top-of-mind policy. The ever-expanding Canadian railway connected the new country of Canada from coast to coast to coast. And for many provinces, such as PEI, this was a determining factor in joining Confederation. Of course, in the last 150-some years to 2020, Canadian transportation has advanced quite a bit, with travel by air, metro, train, bus, car, bike, or even now by boat. Canada is a very unique country when it comes to transportation, and there are several factors which policymakers take into consideration. It's the second largest geographical country in the world, but with a population of only 37 million, Canada is the 39th most populated country. Geography, population, population density, and geopolitics all have historically impacted Canadian transportation, or simply put, getting us from point A to point B. Here to talk to us today about the history of transportation in Canada and federal transportation policy is once from Ottawa, now planted in the Maritimes, policy whiz, recent master's graduate on this very topic from the London School of Economics, writer and great friend, Matt Pelletier. So we are here today with our good friend, Mr. Matt Pelletier. How are you doing, Matt? Doing all right. I'm keeping busy, doing a little writing, blogging, anything to keep me from, you know, contemplating getting bangs or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Overall, I'm doing okay, and um, I'm happy I was able to write on passenger rail recently because I think it feeds well into today's discussion. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us today, Matt. Um, Our first question to you is, can you tell us a little bit about the history of federally funded transportation in Canada and how that impacts the Maritimes? So it's really interesting because Canadian passenger or Canadian transportation history, especially from the federal side, is very much a story that went hand in hand with Confederation. Um, When Canadian Pacific eventually completed the line across Canada, that was seen as really when the country came together um, from that sort of historical narrative. And up until the Second World War, rail was king. You had these big industrialists like the Van Horn family who were big at just uh, funneling money into the network to build it up so that freight can move across the country. And the federal government actually stepped in around the First World War when a number of the smaller lines were going bankrupt and they created a single company which would become the Canadian National Railway out of these four or five defunct companies. Now, when you get to after the Second World War, that's when things changed a little. You had cars and air travel um, that was in more demand throughout the 60s and 70s especially, and that corresponded with a decline in passenger service. So um, as so basically Via Rail, for instance, was set up in 1977 uh, to take over Canadian Pacific's passenger rail network, as well as the limited offerings that CN had. Um, but since that time, it's declined in service and, and, and as um, a number of activists have pointed out, in Atlantic Canada, it's declined at a more precipitous rate than anywhere in the, in, in the via rail system. And uh, when you fast forward to the 80s and 90s, you had basically um, would be the golden age of privatization where you had Air Canada sold off in 1988. 
you had uh, the tourist rail service, uh, Rocky Mountaineer, sold off in 1990. And then you had the big CN privatization in 1995. Mm -hmm. It was interesting because Via Rail continued to remain in public ownership or in state ownership, but it was still declining. And it's led a lot to people speculating that service is only continuing to operate because it gives uh, the government of the day the ability to adjust based on regional political demands, not so much policy demands. Um, Mm. But that being said, in, with, because of COVID-19, uh, a lot of the service in Atlantic Canada has worsened. You've had WestJet and Air Canada pull a lot of the service. WestJet in particular has gone for, uh, down almost 80% um, in its offerings and has completely cut off PEI in New Brunswick. And you've got Air Canada that's going to knock off a bunch of their routes, especially to Charlottetown, um, coming Janu- January 11th. Um, and on the rail side, Via's service is probably not going to be reinstated anytime soon to Halifax, the service they run, um, I believe it's once a day. Um, and I, I, it, it also doesn't look good necessarily for the future of the intercity bus option, like Maritime Bus, when you look mm-hmm. at how uh, Greyhound Canada has suspended its national services, or what's left of it in Ontario and Quebec. And that's in the area of the country with the most demand. So yeah. there's a lot of... I guess with, with Canadian, pa- uh, Canadian transportation history, especially from the federal side, it's, it's, it's been a very tough battle to ensure that there's equitable a- access. And COVID-19 has just made the problem of um, intercity and interprovincial transport a much bigger dilemma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are some really good, I think, interpretations and, and observations as well maybe before we jump into COVID as I know we have a couple questions on that and and obviously that's uh, impacting all forms of transportation right now in Canada Um, but what are some different considerations that federal policymakers would take into consideration on transportation policy in Canada in 2020 kind of you know outside the realm of of COVID-19 obviously that's a huge factor but are there different things that they take into consideration in a kind of modern day sense now that we've just looked at the historical aspect of it? Yeah there's a number of um, considerations they've had notwithstanding COVID. Mm. Uh, The big ones are obviously um, geography and remote access especially for northern and indigenous communities and there's always been a little additional support for remote access, especially in the territories, uh, including um, there's actually a number of um, small nationalized airlines under the pilotage act that still operate a small regional hub service for mostly the transportation of goods. That being said, uh, Via Rail still offers on the rail side um, a number of services to northern Manitoba and Ontario. Um, these services, while they're not necessarily the most efficient, they're heavily subsidized, which allows for remote access up to those communities, especially where even car travel, which is often the default option, is not um, all that accessible. Mm. Um, and on top of that, they, they, they need to consider the role of federalism, the division of powers uh, in mm. Canada, because Traditionally, the federal government has a role when it has to do with interprovincial travel or air travel necessarily, but most intra-provincial travel um, is really very much the duty of the provinces themselves. And 
you have a you have to go through a number of steps as a federal government if you want to support projects that are down the constitutional ladder, say a municipal bus project mm. or provincial intercity uh, rail links, which the Ontario government at least has been proposing for a number of years. And uh, th there's also the partnership that is growing with the Canadian Infrastructure Bank. And while, yeah. there hasn't, while there hasn't been a lot of results necessarily on that side, there actually is a growing interest for service between communities like Edmonton and Calgary. Yeah. So there, 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 there are a number of um, tools that policymakers can use that allow for those considerations to be addressed or, uh, or in the case of not addressing them, just down, downplay, downgraded to uh, provincial government responsibility. Mm, absolutely. And that's really good to have that clarification. Going back to some early points that you said, you know, there's a number of services that are being discontinued in remote access areas. Uh, we know that the Canada Transportation Act's national transportation policy has as objective that rates and conditions do not constitute an undue obstacle to the movement of traffic within Canada or to the export of goods from Canada. Within COVID-19, do you find that this objective is reached? Well, I guess it's highly subjective because if a condition, <laughs> if a condition is just service as, I guess, diversity or options of service, mm -hmm. then it's being progressively less and less met as days go on, uh, especially with the recent changes in air travel. Um, people in remote or non-Ontario Quebec communities, especially the prairies in Atlantic Canada, are losing their options for travel. Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen... You know, I've seen that um, there's a number of students and essential workers who rely on these services, who don't have a car, who need to get from one community to another in order to keep both Canadians and the economy somewhat healthy. Um, and th that, that can't be done, and that almost creates a, a market or policy failure when Canadians uh, and essential workers are not able to... Um, to, 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 to to come to those, or at least to, to reach their destinations in an efficient or um, accessible manner. Um, and then you have other considerations now about what comes after COVID because with a lot of work for home, working from home uh, coming up, it's unclear whether there will be as much of that demand for travel within cities or to cities for work, mm -hmm. which is one of the big, um, big revenue bases for airlines especially. Um, and Via Rail has not provided a timeline for the return of Atlantic Rail services. Mm. So, mm -hmm. and while that wasn't necessarily a popular option, the fact that it's one less option highlights uh, that if a condition is accessibility, then it's being met less and less um, on a national stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you've made a lot of good points, though, too, about kind of this um, centralization of transportation options like you said kind of the the east and the west are, are seeing less and less options um and that's becoming more challenging either to travel within that geographical region or to travel to other you know geographical regions for example to east to west and vice versa um, you mentioned a couple different groups for example via that of course is a crown corp but then as well a couple different um, air services such as air canada that used to be a crown 
a corp that is since you know now privatized. And I think one thing in policy that's really important to know, uh, and particularly when we look at the role of the federal government, is what type of you know structure is it? Is it a public entity such as a crown corporation, or is it um, you know in a lot of municipal areas what we see is a public private private partnership where it's it's both publicly funded and privately funded um, and then in other situations where where it's privately funded how do you feel as though each of those different structures impact you know policy making from the federal level um, and further to that different geographical regions as you have mentioned such as Atlantic Canada and the prairies that are seeing less and less services so it's it's tricky because you have to balance a number of considerations, especially when you're dealing with, I call it different models of ownership. Mm. Because on the one hand, the state has a role in ensuring um, that service is being met from a public interest lens. Uh, on, on the other side of the, on, on the other hand, you have private companies who, while may not have the public interest as one of their priorities, they can deliver the service more efficiently. And that might mean, um, unfortunately, scaling back less profitable services or uh, being able to change what services are on board, say catering options, et cetera. Um, and then you, you get different, I guess, you get different philosophies when it comes to it. Um, you can have mixed models where uh, essentially a, the, a federal government or a national government could own the service and contract it outwards. And that's growing in popularity in the UK right now because mm. for instance, they, they, they had this franchise privatized uh, system of intercity rail. However, just in September, the Minister of Transport uh, has said that the franchise model has failed. And this is from the same party that introduced it. The Tories, just after Margaret Thatcher, were the ones responsible for this. And they are realizing that the model doesn't work. And it, it, while it's unclear what model they'll choose an alternative, it looks like they're going to choose a model that's based on concessions, where the state owns the service, but mm -hmm. contracts it out for a, limit, for a limited period of time and with a strong emphasis on punctuality as a condition for payment. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then you also have the philosophy that if a service is monopolized, say there's only one bus service or yeah. one ra rail service, it should not be a private, it should not be in the private hands, it should be in mm -hmm. uh, this public ownership. And I think that really tied into at least the Alberta government's approach in, um, I believe it was 2018, when they actually stepped in to have better service for buses when uh, Greyhound started their contraction out of Western Canada. So they, with that in mind, that's a consideration that often comes into play. Um, but then when you have the, I guess, when you're dealing with lower population bases, that can also make, make it less of an incentive for bidding processes. And often your best option for a contractor or a, a private operator is your only option. Um, and I know that at least in the case, looking at PEI, um, cities like Summerside actually pay for T3 services for limited service to their communities. However, they're ex at least in the case of Summerside, they're exploring um, how to develop their own network, mm -hmm. their own bus routes. And while they may be a long way off from that, they're still in the sort of study or discovery phase of it. 
um, it could set up a new dimension within, especially within a province with a lower population like PEI. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you raised a very interesting point now, which is, you know, if you have only one provider for a bus or for railway or for whatever it is, then you'd be much better off having it be, you know, publicly run as opposed to privately owned. We know, of course, that for a long time, one of the hallmarks of Canadian surface transportation has been the railway, be it for people or for goods. In 1995, however, as you mentioned earlier, the Canadian Railway went from being a crown corporation to a privatized company. What, according to you, have been some of the biggest impacts of this privatization? Well, and that's an interesting um, decision that was made by the government because the CM Commercialization Act uh, actually pushed a number of policy objectives that were met with surprising success. Their goals revolved around reducing uh, national debt, moving goods to meet NAFTA commitments, and making rail service, at least on the freight side, much more efficient. And those more or less were attained within the first few years of privatization. It brought in cash for the government. Uh, the CN regularly outperforms uh, CP and other private competitors in Canada. And the network has expanded to being one of the largest in North America. Its trackage goes all the way down to Texas and almost, mm -hmm. in, almost into Mexico. Mm -hmm. So within that, that scope, the policy was a success. But on the other side of it, uh, via, via rail relies on CN for 90% of its passenger network. Mm -hmm. uh, and most of it especially is concentrated within the dense uh, Quebec-Windsor corridor in Ontario and yeah. Quebec. Um, and because of that, we have to sign, I say we as a, as a, as a public institution, uh, need to sign transport service agreements with private, offer, private uh, network providers like CN. And those networks, or so those agreements are actually confidential. So we as taxpayers don't actually know wow. how much is being spent on them, what the conditions mm -hmm. are, how much mm -hmm. priority is given to via rail trains. So there's a lot that based on the current framework and the freight orientation of Canadian rail, uh, we don't get to understand and we don't get to draw on in order to improve service nationally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are a lot of really good points. And I actually, I didn't know that about the, um, the confidential contracts. And yeah, you know, as, as taxpayers, I think, you know, it's important for us to be, uh, you know, aware of that and, and to have access to transparent information that we're ultimately paying for. Um, and, and you bring up a good point about via rail. And, you know, you talked about this earlier in the history of it is, um, you know, it came into force in Canada as a ordering council. So, um, you know, for listeners, that means it, it wasn't enshrined in legislation. You know, one example, of what that does look like though is for example many folks know CBC the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation that was enshrined into legislation under the Broadcasting Act. However, although VIA does not have its own piece of legislation, it is mentioned in the Canadian Transportation Act. However, it's not to the same extent in ensuring VIA Rail's existence, such as having its own piece of legislation. Now we know a number of different groups uh, in the legis or in the House of Commons rather have put forward a number of different pieces of legislation over the years. Nonetheless, via rail to this day is not enshrined in legislation. Um, Matt, what do you think are the 
potential policy implications of Viet not being uh, in legislation? And, you know, if not, look, you know, what are some of the different policy remedies associated with that too? Well, the, the biggest implication is that Via Rail service lives, breathes, and dies through cabinet. Mm. And when there's no measures of accountability for Via in order to improve the service, that dying option is really becoming more and more common. Mm -hmm. uh, you have cases where uh, whole lines or whole routes have been shut down without any consultation and with little notice. Yeah. So that leaves passengers, especially, uh, and unfortunately, especially outside of the Quebec City-Windsor corridor, with less and less options and in more precarious position. There are proposals to bring that bring via rail more into the parliamentary fold. And there's been a number of proposed acts over the, over the past few years to make via rail a legislated crown corporation, mm -hmm. basically moving the authority from cabinet to an act of parliament. The most recent one has been introduced just about a month ago by Elizabeth May as a private member's bill. And she's proposing not only that VIA has its own legislative mandate, but that it lists these routes, 20 or so routes, must be provided at a minimum. Wow. That establishes the floor for VIA service, not the ceiling. So with that in mind, an act like that could ensure that VIA Rail is more accountable to Parliament, but also it could give VIA Rail its own capital budget rather than depending on um, piecemeal contributions from the federal government. Mm -hmm. And with that extra money, it can look more at investment, partnering with a private entity for including CN for better service delivery. But until that happens, it's still going to remain effectively a client state of cabinet. Mm -hmm. Wow. Absolutely. Those are some really important considerations that we put forward, especially looking at the vulnerability itself of the rail. Now we know, you know, in an ideal world, we would have completely comprehensive public transportation systems where you wouldn't even need to own a car if you did. <laughs> but from a public policy perspective, what are some of the barriers we would face in looking for that comprehensive public transportation? There's three barriers that come to mind. The first one is geography. With a low, uh, low national population density and high separation between communities, it makes it really expensive for transit options or transit upgrades to actually happen. Um, there's a low return on investment, which makes it unpopular at a federal level. Um, that being said, at least with the uh, sort of the, the fall economic statement, there seems to be a more of an interest in um, infrastructure and spending within mm -hmm. transportation, especially to use that not only as a driver of economic recovery, but uh, as a way to finally get a lot of these proposed projects on the ground uh, running. The other barriers, of, as I've mentioned before, are federalism. Uh, the, there's a lot of competing federal, provincial, and municipal interests, and that's definitely led to the decline of very ambitious projects like high-speed rail within Ontario, where you had cities and rural communities in Ontario fighting the provincial government uh, because it would have turned small towns into bedroom communities or arguments like that. Mm -hmm. um, but it also affects the less ambitious transit projects. And the more recent one is the high frequency rail project that VIA is proposing. And that one is um, 
is going to face a few barriers, especially in the Montreal area, where VIA is trying to get track access through the downtown core of Montreal, but Montreal really wants to use that infrastructure for its own municipal uh, commuter, commuter rail network, the, mm -hmm. the REM. Um, so there's obviously these disputes and they, the provinces, the municipalities and the federal government often end up in sort of a Mexican standoff and do not want to cooperate unless there's guaranteed funding or some measure of or some written agreement or some measure of accountability um, between the parties. Uh, and then the last major barrier, specifically within at least the passenger rail side, I know a lot of my research has been anchored to that, so that's why I keep going <laughs> to that sector, is um, the freight-oriented development of rail. Uh, mm -hmm. Canada, for instance, when compared to the OECD, has an exceptionally high amount of dependence on rail for freight in relation to other forms of freight, say driving by trucks or by using boats. And mm -hmm. because of that dependence on freight rail, for freight, it takes away the needs of passengers from consideration when planning. And mm -hmm. because of that, Canadian passenger rail development, and I'd say other forms of transportation development, have really been at, at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to add in a surprise question here, Matt, only because your answer inspired um, some brainstorming on my own. One of the first items that you have mentioned as a barrier to comprehensive public transportation, of course, was geography. But now we're going to get a little bit selfish and we're going to look at PEI, because as we know, PEI is, of course, a very small geographical region, which allows us to be the most kind of densely populated province per capita in Canada, which is a very unique factor, and particularly with a smaller population of, you know, between 155,000 people, um, that kind of begs the question of, in a geographical region like that, you know, what are the options in terms of public transportation? Now, historically, as we know, um, the PEI railway was, of course, one of the contributing factors to PEI joining Confederation, um, as it, it turned out to be a expensive project for us and we were bankrupt and then that was part of our signing uh, part of our bargaining piece uh, from the federal government to join and we did and that was utilized between 1871 uh, to uh, 1989 when it had been abandoned um, you know although all of those tracks around 75% of them have been transformed into what today is known as uh, the Confederation Trail uh, uh, biking walking you know beautiful trails across PEI do you think, Matt, and we're putting you on the spot here, do you think there's a future for perhaps railway on PEI? Um, and if not, are there other forms of province-wide transportation that you feel would be possible um, given, you know, some of the barriers and, and maybe opportunities that would exist on PEI for public transportation? Well, the short answer is probably not rail. <laughs> only because all of the density, which is great, there's not a lot of geographical distance, which is also sort of needed to build a straight through line. There's not as, and there might not be as much of that appetite to, to switch from car to rail right away. However, there is a, a good alternative, which is uh, an expansion of uh, commuter busing and bus rapid transit around the island. There's a lot of good highways, and I know it's not the most part, you know, it's not the most green friendly <laughs> necessarily, necessarily, but 
you can draw on a lot of commuter bus models. And I know um, the community around I think it's Wolfville actually has a county bus that operates along the highway. Now that's more of a straight line in terms of how it operates. But mm -hmm. you can you can almost scale up a model of intercity, regular, reliable public transit busing that at least accounts for a lot of those population and density considerations. Um, plus, it can give PEI, it's, uh, it can make PEI a leader in that regard and potentially set a standard for other provinces or communities of simil similar po similarly populated um, mm -hmm. communities, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Um, I, you know, obviously I, w I was born after the abandonment of um, trains here on PEI, but when I moved to Belgium, um, I think the first day that I arrived, they had in the village that I lived in this little small train set and I thought it wasn't operational, but it was, it, it was actually like, it looked like it was something out of a movie. Um, it had been owned obviously by the, um, the the province that I was living in as kind of like a historical site to say like, you know, this was an older form of transportation, not just throughout this village, but across the, the province in the region. Um, but, you know, I went every day to school on train and it actually wasn't until June 2019 that I ever took a train in Canada um, and it was between Ottawa and Montreal, but it was only because, you know, um, on PI, if you're going to go to Montreal, there's probably only two options to drive or to fly. It, you know, it never really occurs. If you're going to drive over the bridge, you may as well just drive <laughs> instead of dropping someone off in Moncton to get the, the train. But in any case, all that being said, you recently finished your master's at the London School of Economics. Congratulations. Thank Tell you. us a little bit about your research and your findings as it definitely pertains, you know, to our conversation today. Yeah, and, I, and it also pertains to briefly living on the other side of the ocean too. Uh, <laughs> I, I, when I was living there, I realized that it's so easy to get from one end of the country to the other. I, did, I thought, oh God, maybe if I wanted to visit another city by train, I probably have to book in advance and go through all these hurdles and Oh, there's probably just the lines up that you kind of face when you're dealing with, say, via rail in Ottawa. Um, but I realized how easy it was, and I ended up getting on one of the bullet trains for one of the trip. And these are trains that regularly exceed, you know, um, over 180 kilometers per hour at a minimum uh, in order to get from one community to the other. And I kind of asked the question, why does Canada not have high-speed rail? And I identified a number of factors relating to potential factors that could be tested, um, mm -hmm. say uh, geography, population density, um, the role of private track ownership, how does freight rail fit into that? So I found a number of factors based on, um, a read. oh, and federalism was the other big one to look at. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was able to identify these factors through a theory, literature review. And then I was able to test them within um, uh, with, with, within the context of the G7 and within the context of the OECD mm. to identify what factors or what things make high-speed rail tick in other countries. Mm -hmm. And I was able to find some interesting um, observations. The big one is that freight rail dominance, sort of the, the dependence on rail for freight in relation to the other modes, as I sort of discussed earlier, seems to be the biggest barrier um, with regards to adoption. So the higher, 
of a dependence you have on freight, the less likely you are to even have a network. Mm -hmm. However, of the countries that had a network, it was, a, it was clear that population density was the biggest driver for the actual size of a given network. But mm -hmm. density didn't have that same impact on adoption as a whole. Mm -hmm. So I realized, okay, what factors or what rationale explains um, our population density arguments for high-speed rail in Canada? And I, I read into it a little more and I realized that, um, that the Quebec-Windsor uh, corridor, the densest part of the network, actually does have the density to support high-speed rail. And its density is comparable to a number of the TGV lines in France mm -hmm. and a couple of the Shinkansen lines in Japan. However, that we lose that density, that, that density benefit as soon as we move outside of that bubble, and especially outside of Montreal, Toronto, and Ottawa, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So, um, but a service like that could be a benefit to the rest of Canada because it could become a profitable route for via rail that's then used to subsidize travel in the other parts of the country. And that could result in uh, also uh, older trains or you know, the non-high-speed stock being sent to other parts of the country for better service and better regional service. And that could be, that could be a, a huge plus for Atlantic rail travel especially and solve a lot of these existing dilemmas and may offer a, a brighter future for just transportation, tra passenger transportation as a whole um, when you consider the closures of air travel and bus services in the rest of the country. Mm, that's yeah. fascinating. That's really interesting. And Swata, correct me if I'm wrong, but Mauritius just recently introduced uh, a new form of uh, transportation as well. Mm -hmm. mm. Yes, so Mauritius introduced uh, the metro fairly recently. Currently, it only covers um, I would say the urban centers of the island, it hasn't really expanded to rural regions yet, which is always a little ironic to me because these are the regions that need it the most because that's <laughs> where going by bus takes a really long time. So this was a fairly recent installation. Uh, prior to that, I think in the previous century, I think up until the late 20th century, we also had the train, so, and that was discontinued in Mauritius as well, so we have that in common in PEI, but, <laughs> but um, I think it's a little too soon right now to determine whether the railway home uh, that is, you know, in Mauritius is a success or not, so I think because it's only been a little more than a year since it was um, installed, and since then, of course, we've had a, a pandemic where people have been staying home, so Hopefully, we'll have some more data on that over the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. Yes. Good luck with that. I mean, it, it, it sounds exciting, but also it, it can always draw a lot of like political controversy when there's a new infrastructure project as well. Because there's always fears of pork barreling or anything like that, where it seems it's just favor political, mm -hmm. favor politically supportive communities or anything of that nature. So. It's exciting to see at least, hopefully, that bucks the trend with a lot of these projects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think um, one of the major points of concerns that were raised, you know, when this was being developed was that it was actually contracted out to a company. So that was not based in Mauritius. So there was a little bit of concern as to, you know, uh, since this is being built as kind of a gift to the country or as a loan that the country is going to have to pay back, 
about you know who really owns it up until that is paid. So we'll see how that turns out. <laughs> I hope for the best. Yeah, that's all we can do. One thing I'll piggyback off of Matt, just because I know in your research, of course, um, which is phenomenal, and I'm so happy we got to you know demonstrate that to listeners today. But you were saying, of course, focusing on um, OECD countries. One story that I will share um, is I had been visiting a friend in Italy at one point, and of course they were explaining to me all the different types of trains. And they said, Emma, there's five types of trains in Italy. There's the really slow trains, there's the slow trains, there's the regular trains, there's the fast trains, and then there's the really fast trains. And I was like, wow, you folks really got creative with those names. Uh, no, but all jokes aside, I think that's the, the fascinating thing, and, and you would have come across this in your research too, Matt, like looking at high-speed rail um, in Italy, particularly um, just uh, a total north to south route that is quite phenomenal and also comparable to the um, their Eurostar as well mm -hmm. um, that goes over to uh, of course where you were studying Matt in uh, the United Kingdom so um, fascinating though the different types of um, options that are available um, in, in those types of regions and I'm sure um, and as well you would know you mentioned Japan as well so so many different places we can piggyback off of um, in Canada. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So our last segment, and uh, this is due to popular demand from folks uh, last week, is that we have now swapped out our MRM segment, what used to be the movie, restaurant, um, and music segment for a, a beer panel. Now, <laughs> last week we said it was a craft beer uh, panel. I'm going to transition it to just a regular beer panel. I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but I'm going to lend it over to you folks right now to share what your beer recommendations are. And Matt, as our guest, we'll let you go first. <laughs> well, um, this is a, I guess my recommendation came from last November, but with the Georgia, uh, Georgia runoff elections coming up, I think it's equally applicable. And um, basically, it's when you're watching the coverage that night, you want to have a red, white, and blue beer. So I pick a local ones. I picked the Red Island beer from uh, Gahan House. And then I picked the White Noise from Upstreet and then the Blueberry Ale from Gahan House as well. So I was able to buy local, delicious, and for people south of the border, patriotic beers that uh, allowed me to show an interest both in politics and the local economy. Wow. That's very thematically relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I can go next because I have a little bit of a feeling of what Emma's beer is going to be and I feel like it should be closing the segment today. So um, the one I'd like to talk about is there's actually two IPAs from Upstreet. The first one is uh, Great Day, which is a really good IPA. I find it very easy to drink. And then the other one is the latest version of the Neon Friday, so the 303 double IPA. Of course, as we all know, Neon Friday is just the name of the brand. There's usually different types of beer that fall under this umbrella. So mm. one that I'm talking about in particular is the latest one, which is a double IPA and it's really good. Mm. Yeah, the Neon Friday family of beers are, are quite good, Matt. I don't know if you've ever tried those before, have you? I don't think I had. Um, no. You know what? I, you know, it's quite possible that Shane or my, 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 my girlfriend's brother 
uh, brought them home one day. He usually is in, is in good with a lot of those those producers. <laughs> oh, he usually comes back with some stuff. Um, he may have brought that one home now that I think about it. Mm. You'll definitely have to try it out some night. It's delicious. Absolutely. So my beer recommendation for today, and Sweda's going to laugh, I'm actually going to recommend a schooner. And so the reason why I'd like to recommend <laughs> this beer is um, it is, of course, you know, uh, a maritime beer, the schooner. It is a, you know, domestic bottled beer. It isn't craft. It's definitely mass produced. But I do have a bit of a story associated with it. So um, about a year and a half ago, yeah, a year and a half ago, um, we had some friends visiting, of course, from Alberta, and they'd never been to PI. They'd never been, you know, specifically to Charlottetown, but they really, really, really wanted to try all this craft beer. They said, Emma, we've heard so much about, you know, Upstreet, about PEI Bruco, this, that, and the other thing. And so anyways, um, my friend Will and I had organized a, a evening for them here um, to have the real kind of Charlottetown experience. And so the first stop, of course, was at my apartment in Charlottetown. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to get a case of schooner just to start the night off because you can't get schooner, of course, anywhere <laughs> else. So uh, we ended up, they had no idea what it was. I couldn't help but laugh because I think it's it's just comical beer and it's quite good actually um but yeah so we we shared that with them and um later on went to craft beer corner of course to to try some of their uh upstreet craft beers but definitely recommend a schooner on you know a hot summer day that's definitely a easy easy breezy type beer and uh is still delicious matt now i have to ask have you had a schooner before <laughs> i have not and i can say with complete certainty i have not no. Okay. Well, we'll add it to the list then of, uh, of beers that you should try. So the neon Friday family and then a schooner, um, it's prioritize funny. whichever one you'd like. <laughs> Sorry. So do you go ahead? No, I was just saying, as soon as you said, this wasn't going to be a craft beer panel. I knew the schooner was coming up. So <laughs> <laughs> that one changed on me too. That was a last minute change. Yeah. <laughs> I just sometimes, and you know, for listeners as much, much as sometimes we prepare questions or ideas or recommendations, sometimes as we get into different discussions, different stories or experiences pop up in my head and sometimes I just run with them and that was one of them. Um, but you know what, uh, even if we had a plan that I still would have included it because it's, it's still good and it's fun. So that is all the time that we have with you today, Matt. Thank you so much for sharing this time with us, educating us on the history of public transportation in Canada, what that looks like today, and as well, your recent master's that you finished up. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you for, you for being with us, Matt. Thank you. And that's all that we have for you today, folks. Once again, our closing music is Shane Pendergast with Gaspé Z. Thank you folks so much for listening as well to Matt, our guest in providing his expertise. Folks, please stay safe. Happy holidays. And once again, this has been Dialogue.